Before I begin, uh, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Uh, when we talk about the book of Revelation, it can get pretty heavy. But I want to share one thing before I pray and before we start is you have absolutely nothing to fear. When we open the book of Revelation, some people are scared, some people are uh, overwhelmed or may get overwhelmed, but that is not the point of the book. So as we dive in today, I, I pray that you will remember that. You have absolutely nothing to fear. Because as we're gonna, you're going to see why the, this book is written. So be, bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Father God, as we are about to embark on this journey of studying the seven churches, I pray, Father, that you will bless us, that your spirit will be with us. And Lord, may you continue to lead us to a, a deeper and greater understanding of not just what the Bible teaches, but your will for our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Revelation. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation chapter 1. We're going to spend a few moments looking at this. There is a lot to cover. I mean, we can spend years just on this book alone in, in a sermon series. That's, we're not going to do that uh, all at once. We're going to take bits and pieces of the book and we're going to break it up into sections um, and we'll eventually walk through this book but I wanted to highlight the reason why this book exists for some of you this may be a first for others this may be a review for others it may be hmm I did not know that or you're, you're going to find out something new and my prayer is that as we open and dive down into this book together that we will uh, see some things with fresh eyes or we may be reminded of some things that we have been, been taught and have forgotten. So as we look, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known. Take these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a couple of things. Now, I am going to share with you a couple of insights that we get when we look at the original language in which this is written. And so the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, that if you are a Latin-based language speaker, if you speak French, if you speak uh, Spanish, if you speak Portuguese, if you speak Italian, if you even Romanian. The war, these are all Latin-based languages, and usually these, the, the word revelation is not the translation that we get uh, in those languages. For example, in Portuguese, and I know in Spanish, you have the, it's not the revelation, but it's apocalypsis. Okay? When we read and we understand and we look at this, the English version 
or translation of this book is actually more accurate. Because when in the English language we hear something, oh, it's apocalyptic, we usually associate that with something that is negative or destructive. Oh, that was apocalyptic size event, or, or, or it's catastrophic. But in reality, the word apocalypsis or means to unveil or to uncover. Think about this. When a bride is walking down the aisle and the groom meets her halfway and takes the veil and puts it over out from in front of her face and, and unveils her so he can see her face. That's what the, this compounded word in the Greek, apo, away from, okay? And then you have calypsis, which is unveiling. So you take the veil away. And, and, and we, if we go back, this is the revelation, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. In other words, we shouldn't be afraid, right? If it's revealing, if it's unveiling realities about Jesus, that's good news. Okay? Let's continue. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory of the people of Israel. Now to him who is able to strengthen, well, let's go back here. We're looking at, at how this verb unveiling comes into play in, in, the, in the New Testament. We find the same word, apocalypse, in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 32. And this is what it says, in a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Hmm. The context of this, of this chapter is Jesus is coming. Luke chapter 2 talks about Jesus coming as a baby. And so a light for what? The unveiling, okay, to reveal to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. This is good news. Later, we have Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. You know, revelation for the mystery, that, in other words, the revealing. The mystery is revealed already. So you might be asking yourself, what is this mystery? It's simple. The mystery, whenever Paul talks about the mystery, it's something that we cannot explain as human beings, but it is the fact that Jesus, fully God, came to this world and became fully man and never lost his divinity in order for you and I to have access to salvation. That's what the mystery is. So Jesus came to unveil the, this mystery. He's the one who allows us to see salvation really close to us. And lastly, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5 which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So you can see here that Jesus was revealed. He was unveiled, okay? And we can clearly see that God showed himself to the people of Jesus' time, more specifically to the apostles and the, and the, and the prophets. So when we read this, uh, uh, the, this word reveal in the New Testament 
we get a much better perspective of its significance. It's the unveiling. But let's continue. In that first verse, we also had a few words, made it known. Okay? Made known is to make known by symbols. So what do, let's look at that. Again, Gen, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. To make known. I remember uh, traveling to uh, the Cayman Islands years ago, and there was a post similar to this. And I've seen it other areas also where you have signs pointing to every sort of direction to different cities and parts in the world. It's not that they tell you exactly where they are, but through that symbol, you get an understanding of which direction to take. So the, the things that are revealed in this book are described to be symbols of things that are happening and or or about to take place. So we shouldn't be afraid because Jesus is revealing himself through symbolism in order for us to get a better perspective of who he is. But then we have to look at this verse by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the word testimony in, in the Greek language is the word marturion, which we get the English language, our English language word for martyr? So quick question. Do you want to become a martyr? Are you willing to become a martyr? Are you comfortable with that idea? That to testify of Jesus is to become a martyr. Well, we have, again, looked at the word martyr as something negative, right? But again, the word martyr, marturia, in this context, it means to fearless public proclamation and authentication, usually in tremendous face of opposition. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to die, but it does mean that there will be an opposition to whatever it is that you are proclaiming. So if we're talking about the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to become a martyr, you won't necessarily have to die, but you may and most likely will face some kind of opposition. does that make it harder for you to share the gospel? When you encounter opposition, do you feel, oh man, let me just give up? Well, it's interesting because we find the word testimony in the book of Revelation several times. One of them is found here, Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to, to testify to you, to proclaim, to reveal a message, even though it might be in opposition to either people's ideas and perspectives or cultural understandings or morality. 
about these things for the churches. I'm at the root, I am the root, and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Revelation 22, 16. Here's another one. I warn, I testify. Okay, that's the word marturion right there, but it doesn't have testify, but I warn. It's a proclamation. Everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I want to mess with that. Revelation 22, 20 also says, He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Though we look at this text and we say, man, I so want to relate with it, but don't forget the significance of the meaning that comes with it as well. He who testifies to these things, you, us, me, you, whoever it may be testifying and talking about the coming of Jesus, you will be doing this in the face of opposition. But Jesus is saying here, surely I am coming. I can't think of a better way to get us into the text for this morning than this one. See, the testimony of Jesus happens this phrase, the testimony of Jesus takes place five times in the book of Revelation. And these are the texts. Revelation 1, 2, 9, 12, 17, and 19, 10 happens twice in that particular book, in that particular verse. But I have a question for you. What is the testimony of Jesus? This is the time for you're going to go back into it. We're going to do this a little bit differently. So we're going to pause here, the sermon, right now. I want you to go back into your Bibles as a group in your tables, and I want you to compare and contrast Revelation 19.10 to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 through 9 and 12, 4 through 11. Take time, read those. We're going to give you a little bit of time to walk through this, these, these two, three verses. What is and how do these texts help you understand the scope of the spirit of prophecy? Because in Revelation 19.10, it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Hmm, interesting. Okay. As Seventh-day Adventists, we usually attribute this to the writings of Ellen White. But let me just, let me give you some forewarning. That is an understatement. Or I should say it's an overstatement of the significance of this, of this text because it is taken out of context. The spirit of prophecy is not Ellen White. And I'll let you come to that conclusion yourself. Come to these tables and we'll, 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 we'll come back and we'll revisit this statement. Okay. Now, for those of you that are hung up on the words that I am not negating, 
her gift. Pay attention to my words. I am not negating her gift. All I'm saying is the spirit of prophecy is not only the gift that we believe Ellen White to have. All right, go. Compare and contrast. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. It's nice to hear you guys talking about it. I know some of you are still working, and, and uh, some of you have asked, hey, Pastor, this is, there's a lot here. Yes, I know. I know. There is a lot here. But it's also... It helps us understand, once we understand the scope. Okay, so what do I mean by the scope of the gift of prophecy? I'm going to let you do that talking. What, what is some of your takeaways from the scriptures that you have just read? What is the takeaway you have gotten from these texts that you've just read? about the spirit the spirit okay so if i'm understanding you correctly in revelation it says that the testimony of jesus is the spirit of prophecy but yet at the same time when we look at in other verses it says the testimony of jesus christ or the testimony of jesus we find that in in the book of first corinthians it talks about not just the spirit of prophecy but it talks about the gifts of prophecy given by the Spirit. Does that make sense? All right. Great takeaway. Any others? Juan, you shared something with me. I'd like for you to share it with everybody else. I mean, I, for what I thought, I mean, that it was the, Ellen your White. Your takeaway, we're just, we're just talking about takeaway, and uh, I'll help you. But the, the, the Spirit, I mean, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit in us, but the Spirit, He manifests in giving us a prophecy in this decade. He can choose any one of us, the Spirit of prophecy. Okay. The other one, the Spirit of healing. Okay. I, I know some people, they, they worry of prayer, prayer warriors. Yeah. They're giving because we're the body of Christ. Okay. So I think that he don't discriminate. He just can choose him. even the kid. God manifests. Very good. Very okay. good. So your your takeaway from this also is that the gifts of the Spirit can be various. Can be it can be more than just prophesying. It can be healing, it can be, and that can be through touch, it can be through uh, an encouraging word, it can be those that can preach. And, uh, let me ask you guys a question. Does the Spirit give everybody the same amount of gifts? So therefore, the spirit of prophecy in Revelation is not limited to the writings of Elamite. Are we tracking? Did I ignore her? Did I recognize her? Okay, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Okay? All right, thank you. So once we have an understanding now, 
that the spirit of prophecy is much more than the writings of what we call Ellen White, we can now go into, safely, into the seven churches. Even all to all, blessed is he one who reads about reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. It's interesting because it's one thing for you, the reason why he's saying read aloud is back in those those times, not a whole lot of people knew how to read. You needed to be wealthy or you needed to be uh, uh, most likely a male involved in, in, in the worship service in order for you to read from the scriptures. So the significance here is blessed is he who reads aloud is the person who's reading to everybody else. He's going to receive a blessing. But not only he who reads, but those who receive that word because they can't read. And so the reason for the necessity of reading and hearing is because the time is near. So let's look at this. Again, this is, I'm going to skip over this slide. This is the, the last, this is the three uh, first verses found in the, in the first chapter of Revelation, but I want to get into the seven churches, the book of Ephesus, excuse me, the church of Ephesus. Ironically, this is the same church which Paul writes to the Ephesians. But they're different times. Paul visits the church first. John writes to the church of Ephesus later. And it's important for us to understand that. So where is the church of Ephesus located? There it is. And when you look at the current map, this is the current map of Turkey. This is where they were located. Uh, Some of these places are um, located in modern cities today, but some of them are not. Some of them have been excavated. Some of them have been identified where they are. And we're going to start looking at them a little bit closer. So it, when you look at the, at the map, they start in a clockwise direction from Ephesus all the way down to Laodicea. And so today we're going to look at the, at the church of Ephesus. So jump with me to, to chapter 2, and we're going to start looking at verses 1 all the way down to verse 7. When we read, when we read the seven churches, I want you to pay attention. You might want to jot this down if you are unfamiliar with the structure of the seven churches. There is a similar way and format which all these churches are are written, and here they are. The seven churches have an address. In other words, to the church of Ephesus, right. That's how it starts off. Then there's a message by God. And at this, in this message is, is included, and here, here it is, we're going to see this in a little bit, the things in which God is identifying or uh, that church, both positive and negative, 
excuse me, the positive. Then there's the, an appraisal to the church. There's a counsel to it. And then there is an admonition for those that are reading it and listening to it that there's a component that we must hear what the Spirit says to the church. And at the very end, there is a promise to the overcomer. This is a natural format. You can, you can copy this you can, and, and you can compare it. So to make it easier, what I've done is I, I've color-coded them so you can see exactly what I was talking about. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, this is the address. These things he says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now we transition to the appraisal. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have perversed and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. See, when you read a book like this, the first things that may jump to your mind is, who is the one he's, he's talking about, the seven stars in his hand, and walks through the midst of the seven golden lampstands? What does that all mean? I want to offer you uh, a simple, simple way to interpret prophetic literacy. Excuse me. Literacy. And that is the Bible interprets itself. The Bible will interpret itself. Why? We, the seven stars are found in, in the, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 16. The seven golden lampstands are in chapter 1, verse 12. But in Revelation, chapter 1, verse 20, it gives us the explanation. It is Jesus. He's the one who's standing in the middle. And he's saying that the seven stars are the, are the angels who are giving that message to that church. And the, golden, and the golden lamps are the churches themselves. So the Bible will always interpret itself. And when we look at Revelation, it is really good to have an understanding of the Old Testament to understand what it says, and as we're going to see here. But here are a couple of things that we, are lo- we need to look at. What are the works and labor that Jesus is talking about? These people, they worked on behalf of expanding the gospel, of proclaiming the gospel. Remember, the word martyr is one who proclaims in the face of, of admonition or opposition. They worked themselves so hard to the point of exha- exhaustion that they had forgotten their first love. You see, it's... It's not surprising because back in, in, the, in the city of Ephesus, there was a temple, the temple of Artemis, or we called it the temple of Diana. Same thing. It used to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, Artemis is the goddess of fertility. And so in, it was expected that every citizen would not only 
worship or, or, or that, that deity, but it also, in this particular temple, it had an area for emperor worship. It was expected that the people would pay homage to the emperor because he was considered a god. Now, when you start looking at all of this, you have a goddess of fertility. And what would happen is that in their worship sessions, there would be massive accounts of immoral practices within that temple. Not only do you have immorality, immorality running rampant, you have the worship of a false god that is attributed to the emperor. And now as the people are expected to participate in that, they are proclaiming the good news of the gospel in the face of opposition. And they're working so hard that they drive themselves to the point of exhaustion that they forget their first love. How is your first love this morning? Have you been working so hard to the point that you have forgotten your first love? And, re- and this is, an, is also a great reminder for, for those that have worked in the gospel ministry. For those that are involved in the gospel ministry of the local church. Because you can plan your whole week out and you can be busy doing God's work, but yet... In the middle of all of that, you can forget your first love. Can you remember what it was like the first time you came to Jesus? If you can't, chances are you've probably forgotten the first love. Let me take it deeper. For those of you that are married... Do you still have the first love with your spouse? Are you still in that butterfly stage when you see them for the first time in a while? If you haven't, maybe you've been working too hard to provide for everything else and you've forgotten the first love. But there are, thing, there are a couple of things here, though. There's your works and your labor. They're different. Working to provide is different than the works of the first love. I remember in, in school, I w- uh, they would announce mail call over the loud system, loud loudspeaker system. And so when everybody got a package, everybody, or whenever someone got a package, everybody knew. And it got to a point where whenever I would receive a package from my then girlfriend, my wife now, see, we did it long distance. But she, and, and it would take anywhere between seven to 14 days for that package to arrive. But she would make sure that I knew she cared because she would spray the entire box with her perfume. And so when the box arrived, everybody knew, oh, this is arts. 
the works for that first love. That note you may leave on the refrigerator door, honey, I love you, have a wonderful day. I'm praying, or that text message you say, I pray you have a beautiful day today, or I pray that your day goes well. These are works of the first love, not the labor of providing for it. These are different. I would equate that to the individual perspective as your personal devotional time with God. You can be busy doing the busy work, but you may be too busy to do the spiritual work. And this is the indictment that the church of Ephesians, of Ephesus, received. But it doesn't end there. You also have the evil ones. This is, we're going to go back. The evil ones who call themselves apostles but are not. The Nicolaitans, they hold the teachings of Balaam. What did Balaam do that was so bad? Numbers, it got omitted, but it's Numbers chapter 25. I believe it's 1 through 6. And Numbers chapter 31, 1 through 2. What did Balaam do that was so bad that now created in that atmosphere of negativity? Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 6, and Numbers chapter 31, I believe it's verses 1 through and 2. All right. Well, that's for your roundtable to discuss. We'll come back in a little bit. Have fun. So who would like to uh, venture? What, what did Balaam do that was so bad? Here in the context of that, the, well, I'll talk about the Nicolaitans here in a little bit, but they held the teaching of Balaam. What, what is this teaching of Balaam? What did they do? What happened? Balaam was willing to curse the Israelites for money. And, of course, God interfered with that and didn't let him. Okay. So Balaam, Sharon. Um, So Balaam, he was hired to prophesy, right? He was hired to prophesy against God's people. Did he do that? He couldn't. Balaam couldn't curse God's people because they were... God's people. Balaam led them to sin so that sin could separate. He provided, we said he's, I said, he's the Benedict Arnold of the Israelites. Okay. (laughs) So Balaam led them? He provided the opportunity. Okay. All right. Anybody else? We're seeing that Balaam had is that 
first of all, he allowed, he allowed the other people to believe that he was going to be influenced by them. He knew very well that he would not be able to pronounce um, an evil um, curse against the Israelite because his life will be on the mix. But politically, he, was tr he tried or he thought that he would be between the two sides, let's mm -hmm. say, that way. But just by allowing that to happen, he was already committing the worst crime right, against in, in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. Give, give the microphone to Lloyd, please. His heart was in the wrong place. Okay. Okay, so he was willing to do something that compromised. So he wasn't, he wasn't able to curse them. He had to bless them. Yeah. And in the end, he used trickery to draw them away to false worship and intermingling kind of with so the other culture. Let's expand that a little bit. What kind of trickery did he use? Well, uh, <laughs> he um, uh, basically lured them away by, by the sexual promiscuity of okay. the cultures that the, they were around. But I think one of the things that's really important about this is that this, this church in Ephesus was um, was going about all this work of making judgment um, in terms of false apostles and all of this, and without the benefit of the first love, they can they are susceptible to falling away, because the only way to stay balanced is by holding on to the first love, which is Jesus Christ. Okay. You got just a little bit ahead of me, but yes. You're good. Okay. So, yes. So, thank you, guys. Balaam utilized, I, I used a word here earlier, and I don't know if you caught on to that. His trickery led to a compromise. Compromise. A compromise of principles, a compromise of morality, a compromise of ethics, a compromise of behavior, a compromise of worship, a compromise of stance. And yes, we already saw that the, the, the church of Ephesus was, was busy doing the busy work, but for, was forgetting that relational aspect of it. They were so busy in proclaiming the good news of the gospel that they had forgotten who the gospel was about. Unfortunately, this applies to us too. <laughs> Unfortunately, this applies to us too. I, I want to read something to you, though. Uh, it's found. It says, We must not yield one inch to the customs and the fashions of this degenerate age, but stand in moral independence, making no compromise with its corrupt and idolatrous practices. Now, this was written in the 1800s. Surely we don't have temples where we have to go and pay homage to the emperor, or we have, at least that we are aware of, temples where 
idolatrous and promiscuous worship is taking place that we know of. There may be, but it's not out in the public like it was back in, in the church of Ephesus. But this writing, these writings, are still valid to us today. But I want to continue. Let's move forward. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let me go back to this. The Nicolaitans hold the teachings of Balaam. Balaam used compromise. And the Nicolaitans, according to Irenaeus, the one of the early church fathers, his, his, uh, he attributed that the Nicolaitans are the followers of one of the seven deacons of the early church. Those that were seven that were chosen along with Stephen. You see, just because you may start off in, in the good or in, in good standing doesn't mean that you're going to end up in good standing. Just because we have knowledge of who Jesus is doesn't mean that we are going to continue to follow that knowledge. And just because we understand what the gospel is about doesn't mean that we will practice what the gospel is about. This is what Jesus is saying. They, they hate what the, these Nicolaitans are teaching. Because the Nicolaitans are teaching a compromise. It's okay. That's all right. It's not going to hurt you. It's not that big of a deal. But these practices will pull you away from that first love. It, and it's not just the immorality, it's not just the promiscuity that was taking place, it was everything else. When you forget to address your first love, you begin a falling out. That happens in the church as well as in the home. Let's continue. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. One, one theologian put it this way. Departure from the first love is a falling. It is symptomatic of a decline in practice as well as in devotion. The first love and first works belong together. The latter springs naturally from the former. Consequently, the disappearance of the first love entails the disappearance also of the first works, which are works distinguished by selfless zeal and joyful dedication. To recapture the first love is to return to the first works, and this is what the church of Ephesus needs to do if it's to recover the well-being before God. I could also put here, this is what the church of Naples needs to do. The works 
of the first love. But I don't want to end here. I want to remind you that to him who overcomes, it implies a continuous victory because the way that it is written in original Greek is that it's a, you don't just conquer once. Every single day, it's a continuous conquest. It's a daily practice. It's something that you do every single day. You may get up and you go through the day like, "Ah, today was a good day. But then the day ends. And you can't live based on yesterday's experience. you got to have new ones. And you need to continue. This is what it's implying by he who overcomes, he who continues every single day to overcome the challenges of compromise, who overcomes the challenges of forgetting the first love. And to him who overcomes, I will give of the tree of life. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve? Wherein Eve found herself before the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a dialogue that was had between her and the serpent. And the serpent said, you will not surely die. Make a long story short. Eve compromised herself and compromised the instructions that God had given her. As a result of her compromise, she had her, both Adam and Eve were kicked off the garden so they would not have access to the tree of life. A compromise in your spiritual walk with God, can have everlasting consequences. So this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to not compromise, but to overcome. Is there somebody here tonight, this, this afternoon now, who is who has struggled with their spiritual walk with God, who has struggled with the idea of potentially compromising themselves before God. And I'm not talking about just sexually or or spiritually. I'm talking about in any form. As adults, we are faced with that battle daily. As children, you are faced with that battle daily as well. Is there somebody here who's, who needs a prayer of, Lord, give me the strength to overcome and not to compromise? God bless you. We'll be praying for you. Is there anybody else? The reality is that we all struggle with that. And I'll also say this. There is strength and comfort in numbers. Here's the church body that can pray for each other. It's not just me. It's not just the pastor who's going to pray for you. Lift each other up. Praying for strength to overcome. Not to compromise. Because your access to the tree of life depends on it. It is that serious.
It is that important. So my prayer to you this morning, or now afternoon, do not compromise. Encourage one another. Pray for one another as I will be praying for you that you will have the strength to do the works of the first love, to go back to that first love, to fall in love again. And it's, I'll tell you, and if you're married, you, your first love can be revived. It's not lost. It doesn't matter how old or experienced or mature you may be. This applies in our own personal lives as well. May God bless you. May God grant you the strength. May God give you the wisdom to stand and not compromise yourself.